Clara Sunderland and Talk Immigration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group, both at the University of Sheffield. Restrictions on immigration, as well as certain integration policies, are sometimes justified on the basis that too much or a certain kind of immigration risks uh, eroding social cohesion in democratic welfare states. Political philosophers who analyse the ethics of immigration have therefore been interested also in the empirical validity of these claims. And this was the topic of a recent conference at the Centre for Advanced Migration Studies at the University of Copenhagen. And during this conference, philosophers, sociologists and political scientists met to discuss the question of what, if anything, citizens need to share for a society to be cohesive. Two political philosophers who presented their work at the conference joins this episode to discuss social cohesion and immigration. We have Niels Holtuk, who is Professor at the Department of Media, Cognition and Communication at the University of Copenhagen, and who runs a major research project on shared values and social cohesion. And we also have Patti Tamara Lennard, who is Associate Professor of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, who has written extensively on trust, immigration and culture, especially in her book, Trust, Democracy and Multicultural Challenges. I started by asking Niels Holtug to discuss whether social cohesion requires a shared identity or shared values amongst the citizens. Right, so our shared values, uh, do shared values tend to promote uh, trust and solidarity? Um, and I think they do, but I think there might be different kinds of explanations. So I think there's some sort of indirect explanations. So uh, insofar as we share uh, sort of liberal egalitarian values, there will be some indirect effects of that. So if we share liberal egalitarian values, we will be more likely to support uh, institutions that will uh, be more likely to generate uh, Trust and solidarity. So there, there, you know, there's uh, certain ways of organizing society, and in particular, uh, sort of, um, you know, universal welfare states. I think tend to produce uh, more trust and solidarity in the citizenry. So that's kind of an indirect effect, institutional effect of sharing. At least a, a sufficiently large proportion of the population has to share values, liberal egalitarian values, to put those institutions in place that will again tend to to promote uh, trust in strangers and, and solidarity. So I think that's one kind of indirect effect. And I think there are also uh, distributional effects. So uh, uh, countries in which people share these liberal egalitarian values will uh, have institutions that promote egalitarian distributions. And, uh, and we kind of, we know that uh, socioeconomic equality tends to produce trust, uh, and in particular trust in strangers. So that's also kind of an indirect effect of sharing uh, values, right? Sharing the right values, not sh sharing any kind of values, but sharing liberal egalitarian values. And then I think that there's a third kind of effect, which is perhaps more controversial, whether there are direct effects of sharing values. So, you know, is it the case that insofar as we uh, share certain values, we identify with each other, and that identification tends to generate sort of positive relations to other people, including trust and solidarity? And, um, and that might work in two ways, I think. It, you know, it might be uh, an effect of identification, or perhaps it's more uh, really the, uh, the values we share that are important rather than 
just whether we share them or not. So maybe it's the values that are doing the work rather than the sharing of the values. Um, but I think that it seems to me, right, that uh, sharing certain kinds of values and, and uh, liberal egalitarian values, to some extent also multicultural values, at least that's what we've found in empirical studies, uh, are correlated to high levels of trust and solidarity. Um, so I think that there are probably all these, these more direct effects of sharing values, um, but whether it's the sharing that's doing the work or it's the values that just tend to, you know, insofar as you support, you know, sort of basic equality or, or you know, everyone's equal, equality of opportunity, you will also be more likely to, to trust strangers and so on. Uh, these are two different explanations and, and um, I guess I think that uh, sort of the values, the nature of the values is doing a lot of the work at least. Maybe just um, a point of clarification before we move on to Patty. When you say values, right. you refer to a range of different things, right? So it could be, any, it could be cultural values or... It could be, but uh, as I said, I think that uh, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not just about sharing. It's what matters, it matters what values we share. I mean, we, we could think of values that probably would be detrimental to, to trust and solidarity, right? So, you know, so suppose uh, we're thinking about values such as uh, uh, short-term egoism, uh, uh, lack of faith in democracy, those sorts of values. Insofar as, you know, uh, we share those values, that would probably be bad for trust and solidarity. Yeah. And, and um, Patty, have you got... Yeah, a I have different a, view. Well, I have a different view. Yes, I have a different view. So the question, as you asked it, as I understood it, was: Is identity essential or important for social cohesion? Okay. So I don't answer that question in my general work. The general sort of uh, so the, so the terms or the concepts that I use are: I mean, I, I'm very interested in what generates trust and what are the conditions that erode trust. And it's because I think that trust is the main ingredient for the cooperation on which de democracy relies, which is not quite the same thing as cohesion. So just, just for the purposes of, of clarification, what I'm interested in is what, what is it that prompts people in large communities, large democratic communities, to cooperate with each other? Because I believe that that cooperation is essential to produce, producing all kinds of democratic goods, including but not limited to the redistribution of resources. Okay, so all of that is a background. Um, I also think that uh, secondarily, that trust itself comes, so I don't think it comes from shared values, although I think that when people think that they share values, trust is easier. But I think that, that what causes people to trust each other is, is simple daily interactions. So in that, uh, I'm quite different from a lot of the people in the literature, which is to say that I think that the fundamental trust that matters is interpersonal trust rather than political trust or rather than institutional trust. So I think that people are making decisions about whether in my case, Canadians are trustworthy based on the interactions they have on a day-to-day -day basis with Canadians. And so a lot of that depends on who is in their neighborhood and who are they meeting. And because we're concerned in the context of the conference that generated this uh, conversation, we're concerned about divert questions about diversity and integration and uh, whether or not diversity poses all kinds of problems for cohesion. I think one of the things that really matters is what are the social interactions that you have with people who are diverse in your community? So first of all, that means you have to have them. So that um, if you live in, an, in uh, 
Moose Jaw, Canada, you, you have fewer interactions with people who are diverse, and so you have fewer opportunities to make determinations about whether you think there is trust across diversity is, a, is sort of a problem. Okay, so, I, so in general, so the, the views that tr interpersonal trust is essential to cooperation, and secondarily that uh, whether or not people trust each other depends on, on sort of local, local personal interactions, and then that's what's essential to, co to cooperation in a democratic state. So that's, that's the view. So does identity matter? Uh, and the answer to that question is yes, and, and it's because of the specific way in which, the specific sort of content that I give to identity which has to do with sort of a basic subset of, of, of cultural norms and practices and, and that people share and develop as, a, as part of a community. So I think that trust happens when people who look different to each other make the same decision about um, which side of the sidewalk or pavement to walk on. And I think that trust happens or doesn't happen when people make the same kinds of decisions or have the same kind of expectations about whether a pedestrian or a car goes first at sort of in situations where it's not clear which is who has the right of way. And I think trust is built or not built when uh, people queue for public services or for buses or for, tra or, or for transportation or in cash, you know, when they're lining up for the cashier. If people are queuing in the same way, respecting the same sort of general practices, but everybody looks different, then trust is being built among the people who are following the same set of norms. So in, to the extent that I think that identity is doing the work, I think it is, it is an identity that is full of uh, cultural practices which develop more or less from the ground up in a population which are passed on to newcomers in, in sort of in public space and are practiced in public space. So I suppose with Niels's terminology, you're more concerned or you think the, 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 the mechanism is the sharing? Yes. Rather than the yeah, no, specific right. content, exactly, exactly, and that's exactly what I was thinking that he's, that he that he as he was talking that it's the it's the fact of sharing, and not what in particular is shared. Yeah. So, do you have any comments on uh, um, that, perhaps? Right. So, um, well, as I said, I think there. So, well, so on the one hand, it, um, I think. Uh, it has to matter what values are shared. We can think of examples uh, where, uh, you know, of shared values where it's just, um, you know, we might not be able to, to find them empirically, but it's just really implausible to imagine that um, those values would lead to trust. Uh, you know, if they're sufficiently, you know, uh, as I said before, if your values are short-term egoism, um, lack of faith in dialogue and democracy and so on. Sharing those values, I, I, I just, you know, I can't see how the, that would be conducive to, to trust. Uh, um, so it has to matter what the values shared are. Now, now that, those are not the kinds of values you're thinking about, and, and they're probably also at another level than the values you're thinking about. But, but you know, for that reason alone, I think, yeah, um, uh, the, the, the kind of values, that has to matter. Um, yeah, no, I'm prepared to accept that, actually. Right. I mean, if, if everybody's norm in um, trying to pass through a door, right, somebody has to go first. But if everybody's norm was to try desperately first, to go first, yeah. <laughs> then you could see that that would be, not be the right, kind of, uh, the right kind of norm, right? So you can, you, could imagine, you can imagine all kinds of cases. Like if everybody's right. norm was to try to barrel down the sidewalk pavement 
and try to plow everybody over that that would be that would not be conducive so i might it, so so you have to be right that that, that it's not it's not entirely um, uh, it's not entirely unconstrained what the content is so even even if we're not talking about the same types of values uh, or the same like you know, polit like political high level abstract political mm -hmm. values or 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 sort of micro level um, cultural cultural values or practices i'm mean, going to prefer the language of practices then it, that there are constraints that certainly that's certainly the case. So, I mean, you know, maybe we can uh, get together and sort of construct what are the constraints on these, right? What are the they have to show? You know, they have to be they have to be practices or values that show some some general concern for others, or they have to respect non-harm principles, or they have to be con consistent with or demonstrate equality in some way, and so that any sort of inegalitarian, harmful practices can't possibly be serve to develop. Trust. They have to be. They would undermine trust. So you, you could have. You could imagine some criteria like that. Mm. Right. And no, I definitely think they would have to incorporate some form of basic equality to yeah. to be conducive to to trust and solidarity. So, so I suppose the next question then is what uh, Patty already mentioned is what does all this mean for diversity um, and uh, whether immigration as such as a threat um, threatens social cohesion. Um, so I suppose it depends on, uh, well, various things that you'll think about what it is that produces uh, social cohesion. So I don't know, Nils, if you want to start saying something about that. Sure. Well, uh, so it seems to me that sort of the, uh, you know, there are all sorts of empirical studies of this, right? So it's uh, been uh, intensely studied. Does uh, does uh, immigration or ethnic diversity drive down social cohesion and and trust in particular. Um, and if you look at the, the, the studies, it seems to me they just point all over the place, right? <laughs> uh, and they've even, uh, you know, there are these recent meta-studies that uh, suggest, so, so one recent meta-study uh, concludes that for every study that finds that uh, diversity drives down social cohesion, there's another study that finds that it doesn't, right? So. So, so, uh, so I guess uh, so. So it seems to me that there may be conditions under which diversity will drive down certain aspects of social cohesion, but there are probably other uh, circumstances under which it doesn't. And, and of course, the important thing is to try to work out what what are those circumstances. So, do you think it matters? Uh, is one circumstance whether the importance is what values we share or just the fact that we share them? Um, so I think that there are probably certain kinds of societies that are better uh, suited to um, have diversity than other kinds of societal organization. Right. Yeah. And that, um, and that part of that has to do with what I was talking about before, so the nature of institutions. So I think that probably in if you have a universal welfare state, for instance, um, where you don't sort of uh, single out uh, specific groups, have means testing, and uh, and sort of um, you know only direct uh, uh, social benefits towards the poor, for instance, uh, where you kind of uh, single people out and 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 raise the and and the the question gets raised of well, are they really needy? Are they really deserving, and so on? And that will probably um, 
be detrimental to to trust and solidarity. So mm. I think uh, the the nature of institutions matters for for um, the impact of diversity on certain aspects of social cohesion. Does the empirical evidence suggest that's correct? So that, for example, that the Scandinavian states are somehow better able to accommodate diversity because they have that, those kinds of institutions that you just described? Well, that's what uh, someone like Bo Rothstein would, would suggest, yeah. Right. And, and Okay, and then how does, uh, how does Bo Rothstein explain the United States, which correspondingly has quite um, a low-quality welfare state and yet is one of the largest welcomers of migrants in unproblematic ways for decades. Well, I think he'd emphasize the low level of trust in the United States right. uh, and see um, that as an impact of uh, institutions. Right. I might be wrong actually with this, but I think as well attitudes to immigration are a bit more positive in some of the Scandinavian welfare states than in the United States. I'm not entirely sure if that's right, but I think that it, it might be. Uh, uh, I think it's right, and that might be an explanation. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm in a way surprised to hear that because I mean, in a way that you know, people always describe the um, American people as as uh, you know various types of racist and hostile to immigration, and yet nevertheless, consistently, they're letting in the largest number of you know like huge proportions of migrants for permanent migration reasons for temporary migration reasons, notwithstanding Mr. Trump, large numbers of refugees, et cetera. So it's hard for me to square, um, square that with, the, with this idea that's there, so that we should sort of focus, that in the United States the right focus is, the lack, is, is low levels of trust, because as a matter of fact, it is. But it, large numerical numbers, not proportional to the, not per capita. Uh, so Sweden has per capita, I think, a lot higher immigration than the United States, for example. Does it after 2015? Uh, probably even more. Well, especially yeah. probably after yeah. 2015. I mean, after after the after so after, but okay, when did it close the borders to Syrians? Uh, well, to everyone. Uh, uh, yeah, to the end of 2015. But there's still uh, quite a few asylum seekers uh, who make it uh, across the border. Um, yeah, okay. So. I mean, without, without the actual numbers in front of me, it's hard for me to, to speculate. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, the United States, so listeners, I'm actually Canadian, so I've been, <laughs> I found myself in this position defending the United States. Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, they are, I mean, it is, a, it is a country where people, I mean, people tend to want to lower rates of immigration and yet like and defend all of the individual immigrants that they know. Yeah, that is probably that might be a difference. So uh, I just, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll stick to what I know in the next question. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, about this conflict then between diversity and uh, uh, social cohesion. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I have a similar response to Niels, which is that institutions can mitigate or have a maybe not mitigate is not the right word, but institutions have a big sort of have a big inf influence on how um, diversity is treated, but in the Canadian case, which is obviously the case with which I am most familiar, because I'm Canadian, <laughs> um, is, is, is that the state has taken a really active role in making people think that immigrants are net contributors to Canadian society, right? So, so with, 
even in the deep dark days of conservatism, which we emerged from in 2015, nobody ever said immigrations, immigrants are a drain or that diversity is a problem. Even the most conservative of our, of our prime ministers was constantly saying we are, we are a united country in which we welcome people from every race and every religion and everybody's rights are respected and everybody is a contributor to, um, to Canadian society. So I mean the Canadian case is, is in a way unique because it way before everybody else figured out that what you should do with an immigration policy is focused on high-skilled migrants. Canada had well in place by the late 1960s a system to pick out people who were most likely to be uh, effectively integrated into the economy, into society by selecting for people with education, by selecting people for linguistic capacity in English or French, by and or by selecting for people with various sort of human social capital. So since the 1960s, we've let in large numbers of migrants, but they have been overwhelmingly people who are more educated than Canadians, have greater, subs greater skills than Canadians. And so when they come in and then the data is produced, the, the government can always say, you know, here's, here's the contribution of Canadians and it's X dollars per person per in the GDP. And then immigrants are doing more, they're doing better, they're taking less from tax dollars, et cetera. And that, has in the Canadian case become ingrained in as part of the story, right? So now Canadians, Canadian, Canadians in the public just have this idea that we're tolerant. But what we have never done is been able to, like what we have never done is created a, a social or political environment in which the set of people who are more likely to take from the welfare state, who are the poorest, who are the struggling the most, are, are also immigrants, right? So, in, so in, compared to the United States, there's an image, if you ask Americans who is on welfare, they have an image of who's on welfare, who's the takers. But in Canada, Canadians don't have that kind of association. So if you have a, so in that sense, I agree with Niels's sort of story, which is if you have an institu sort of institutional apparatus and political leaders who are using the right language, then, then the idea that diversity is a problem is not really something that occurs to very many Canadians or very many people. Abstractly. I think that's also very important that country cases are different. So yeah. uh, it also matters what the sort of what the composition of of the immigrant group is, and and uh, and uh, uh, so Canada is a very different case from various other countries, including my own country, Denmark, where uh, the sort of the profile of immigrants has been very different, uh, and there are all these cal calculations of of sort of the the, the a cost of uh, non-Western immigration in particular, which has been extremely influential in, in political debates. And, and so that's a, a completely different uh, focus, which of course also uh, impacts uh, a popular opinion. I suppose it depends to the extent that people are actually educated. Um, I think it's in, both in Sweden and Denmark, uh, it seems to be the case now because there's been a lot of refugee um, immigration um the the sort of economic uh, impact of, of immigration might be at least if you look at cost of public uh, services or, or and benefits and things like that's slightly negative um so it might be that people actually write about these things in, in Denmark and Sweden but in the UK actually immigration uh, most research show that it's got a positive economic impact but people still think it's got a negative right uh, yeah yeah no, I think that's probably right Right, so there's two, there's two, there's one, whether the institutions are capable of uh, mitigating any sort of co over, like costs over time, and, w and then what the political actors are saying about the evidence, because they're both, they're two, 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 yeah, two right. essential ingredients to making sure that diversity doesn't actually become a focal point for political mobilization. 
I just thought it was something before listening to your talk where um, related to this question. So you are basically arguing for a kind of cultural, formal cultural nationalism. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering whether that might translate into some form of immigration restrictions. So, so you argue that it's important that people know, for example, which side of the pavement to meet on, even though I can't ever seem to get it right in any country, including <laughs> my own. <laughs> um, so people shouldn't trust me. Uh, but, um, you know, those things, it's not impossible for someone to learn those things. In fact, it might be pretty easy. But nonetheless, if there are a lot of immigrants at the same time, it might be a problem on your view, no? I mean, I mean, that's the kind of thing that people always say to people who defend any kind of national identity, right? But, but it's, that's, that, it follows from that that it's necessarily an argument for restricting immigration or it's, it's too close to arguments that allow for the restriction of immigration. And so it's a problem because, it, because there's a lot of because statements, because it restricts free movement, because it encourages people to um, be skeptical of migrants as they, as they try to go through the integration procedure and uh, I choose to remain agnostic on that because I actually think I think I think that well no that's I'm gonna, I'm gonna delete that delete 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 <laughs> uh, I think that that's a misleading worry if you have uh, again an institutional apparatus that allows for the transmission of relevant information to newcomers right so in the Canadian case one of the things that we said so I don't know how this debate went in Sweden, but when we welcomed 40,000 Syrians, which for us was a large number of refugees in a very short period of time, one of the explanations that the Canadian government was able to do, because it was patted on the back for admitting these large numbers of refugees in the context in which other countries were not really doing so, and one of the explanations was Canada has the infrastructure Right. We have a large immigrant settlement organizations, large numbers of NGOs uh, and government services that are focused on integrating people quickly. Right. So we were able uniquely, that's in, that's in quotation marks for listeners, uniquely able to handle large volumes of newcomers because the integrative services are already there. There's already all the documents were already produced. Here's what, here are your rights in Canada. Here's how you find a job in Canada. Here's what the labor market looks like in Canada, et cetera. And all of that was prepared. So, um, so to the extent that countries can develop an infrastructure which uh, allows for the rapid integration of newcomers, I think that there's no particular reason to think that any view is an argument for restricting immigration. It's a view for, that says, if you believe these things are important for integration, then the government's job, the state's job, morally speaking, is to create the infrastructure that allows for the admission and integration of large numbers of newcomers. I mean, it's pretty clear to me that immigration is good and that people should be free to move and that uh, various kinds of racist, xenophobic sentiments should not be used to close borders. So correspondingly, states have a duty to construct environments in which people can move in freely and find that their rights are respected and that they're welcomed as members of a liberal democratic community. All right. So that leads me on very well to what I think will be the final question. So because you're both philosophers and these are all sort of empirical questions, but um, but now you, you've started mentioning, you know, even if he's the case, or maybe Nils, you want to start again, um, 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 leading on from what Patrick just said. So even if it's the case 
um, that immigration may be, you know, maybe we don't have the right institutions, maybe we don't have the right capacity uh, or whatever to, uh, to make this smooth so that immigration doesn't have a negative impact on social cohesion. Um, do states have a right to kind of use this to restrict immigration? Uh, so have the right to use what to, uh, to use the the uh, the empirical arg uh, argument that it's negative for social cohesion so so i i take it that because you're both interested mm. in the empirical question right. you think that the empirical question matters for the normative question right yeah um right so um i mean i i yeah I could imagine circumstances under which um, immigration would be so bad for uh, aspects of social cohesion. You know, it, it would break down the state or something like that. But, you know, um, where uh, I think states would be uh, entitled to restrict immigration for that reason, obviously. Um, but uh, I, uh, so for me, this is a, a difficult question also because I'm a cosmopolitan. I think, I think that states don't have, at, at sort of the, the fundamental level, I don't think states have stronger obligations towards their own citizens than they have towards citizens of other countries. So for me, it's not just a question of what happens in the country to which immigrants come, right? It's also what happens in the world as a whole. And uh, there might be sort of uh, effect, effects here that point in different directions, right? So you could have um, sort of, uh, you can imagine circumstance, circumstance under which you have negative effect in the receiving country. But that sort of, for global equality, you actually have positive effects, right? Because people, uh, Immigrants gain a, a higher standard of living. They send back remittances to their countries of origin, which will have positive effects there, and so on. So it's um, so for me, it's a more complicated question than just looking at uh, effects in the in the receiving country. And that also matters for what um, uh, what entitlements states have when limiting immigration. Hmm. Uh, that's a hard question. The way that you asked that question is a hard question. So what I said in, uh, earlier is that in cases where the possible explanation for why immigration is going to be limited is that we don't have the capacity to integrate them, the state clearly has the obligation to develop the capacity to integrate mm -hmm. them. Right? This is, and this is, this is the... I mean, Internationally, this is the question, do states have a moral obligation to become more like Canada? Because if states became more like Canada, then more people could move freely without experiencing the deleterious effects of being large numbers of ethnically distinct migrants in a new state. Um, so kind of, I mean, I kind of think that. I, right, I kind of think that one of the obligations that states have is to develop the conditions under which they can admit large numbers of migrants, large numbers of people who want to migrate without, yeah, without relegating them to second-class citizen, citizenry, right? So I was, I was thinking as you talked, it would be a really weird thing to say to a migrant, well, look, you came in, and, and we're going to treat you like a second-class citizen. But it's better to be a second-class citizen here from, a, from the perspective of, of, of a sort of a global egalitarianism than it is to be a first-class citizen 
in the Central African Republic, so you should be willing to accept that trade, right? And that's, in effect, that's what we say to many categories of temporary foreign labor migrants, which is you should be satisfied to labor in our market, in our, in our, uh, to take, you know, low paid jobs on a temporary basis in our country in exchange for sacrificing all of your political rights that you would ordinarily have as a citizen, like being with your family, like moving freely, like changing employers. That's effectively what we say is exactly this kind of argument, which I think is deeply problematic. Uh, so, so that, and then in responding to the second thing that you said, which is that, you know, do we have duties that are distinct from insiders and outsiders? So it's hard for me to answer that question because it's clear to me that if we let in temporary foreign labor migrants or any other category of migrants, we then incur greater obligations to make sure that their integration goes smoothly, that they're integrated into full equality. So correspondingly, I have to believe that something that you've said is wrong, right? Some part of it has to be incorrect. It cannot be the case that for global reasons of global equality that I should be prepared to accept on a simply cost-benefit cost analysis. It's more egalitarian to let in the citizens of the Central African Republic to Canada to pick our strawberries and pay them low wages and not let them travel with our family, but global equality is served, and now we're treating them as effectively second-class citizens. So that can't be right. Well, perhaps there could be instrumental reasons. So, so if you have, uh, if you let in people as sort of second-class citizens, that's going to have detrimental effects in the longer run for the state and and sort of it's it's not really going to be productive in the long run, even for securing global equality. So, so I would want to invoke those kinds of considerations and, and use those to support uh, the view that you know it's it's not. You can't just let in people as second-class citizens and, and and justify that with uh, global equality. That you know that might actually be counterproductive in the long run. But that's a a long and um, complicated and highly empirical <laughs> argument to make. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, but it, it part, in part, I mean, it distinguishes. I think it distinguishes us from in the perspective. Now we're getting far away from the question you asked. But from the, like in, the, in, the, in the in sort of the, the, like what is what does the ideal world look like, right? And your ideal world is one big world. And my ideal world is a series of, relatively speaking, smaller, independent, republican states in which all people are treated equally, and which, within boundaries of moral permissibility, make choices about how they want to run their lives together. So that, there's, that, I, think that, that I think there's many, many different ways to run a democracy, and people could have different preferences about which are the right ways and which are the more, you know, whether they want to have an active democracy or a passive one, or whether they want to be a democracy that, you know, supports sports with their resources or supports opera. And I think those are like entirely legitimate choices that countries might make. And if we lived in a world in which, you know, every state was politically self-determining and respected basic rights, then you could, you could make your way to an argument for limiting uh, immigration in those kinds of cases because all of the kinds of things that we think are important about what states provide to citizens are met. And then, consequently, fewer people would want to move because I actually don't think that people want to move in general. And that's part of the sort of the general position that I have, which is that it's a people talk about the great migrations and how more people than ever are moving. And all I can think of is mostly people are not moving and mostly people don't want to move. But why are people moving? They're coerced by poverty or by war and they would prefer to stay home. And if we take that seriously, then the vision the vision can be one of, of sort of self like genuinely self-determining egalitarian states, which make different choices about how to govern their lives together. 
I agree that in a more equal world, we'd probably see less migration of the kind we're, we're seeing now. Um, I should perhaps clarify that I'm I'm a moral cosmopolitan. I'm not a political cosmopolitan. So it's not I think that there should, you know, should yeah, be a, a world a government or yeah, I'm a moral cosmopolitan too. Right, all people are equal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, so when you said that uh, uh, countries should be more like Canada, yeah. uh, did you also mean in the respect that um, uh, they should have these more selective um, immigration systems where they sort of uh, cherry pick uh, people who, uh, so, so one way of putting it is that they're more easy to integrate, but another way of putting it is that they're better educated and, and high skilled. Oh, um, no, I think it's probably a morally problematic immigration policy. So in that sense, and I think it's probably bad overall if the sort of the objective is to steal the you know the talent from the global south, take it to the global north, and take advantage of it without having paid the costs of educating, you know, or creating the that talent and leaving other countries less well off as a result. Uh, but having said so, having having criticized the particular incarnation of the way that Canada has done it, which has really been an entirely self-interested strategy, I don't think it's I don't think it's a um, incorrect to sometimes think that certain kinds of features of newcomers are better suited to certain kinds of countries than other kinds of countries, right? So I think it makes sense for Canada to specially select English and speak French-speaking migrants, not to the exclusion of others, but that's, it doesn't seem to me objectionable that that would be um, a criteria that you might choose linguistic capacity. So I think, I think that if you looked at those sort of general criteria that Canada uses, you would find that some are, some are better and some are worse from a moral perspective and that, and that it would be useful to have a sort of a, as it were, global conversation about which of them are legitimate reasons to uh, recruit and which, right. are, which are not. But in, but in general, no, I think, the, I think that the, the, the point system, that's what it's colloquially called, the point system which ascribes points to each of the individual features that migrants have is probably... Um, probably globally speaking, uh, morally problematic. Right, right. I will concede that, although Canada's a very nice country. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, I was going to ask this, uh, ask, uh, this question about whether we should become like Canada, uh, and now that it's come up, maybe uh, maybe I'll just um, give Nils the chance in the end because uh, I don't. When it comes to generosity in in, in immigration or refugee policy, I, 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 I don't think a lot of people think that uh, countries should become like Denmark. Um, so, do you do you think should should Denmark become like like Canada? <laughs> Well, it depends in what respects, of course. Uh, I think in terms of the welfare state, Denmark should probably stay more like Denmark than yeah. become like Canada. I, I, um, I want the record to show that I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think probably in some aspects of immigration policy, Denmark should be more like Canada. Um, although I'd be worried about a system that yeah, um, very selectively picks talents and, and, and doesn't uh, uh, include or makes it very difficult yeah, for other people it's to... It's globally unsustainable as a system, right. right? It's a system that has only worked for Canada because other other countries are very slow to catch up. Right. right? I mean, now, now there's starting increasingly starting to be competition for talent, but when Canada started, nobody, nobody was thinking sort of seriously about how do we get the right kinds of people. Right. I should perhaps... I, you know, I'm not... Uh, I'm not not an open borders guy. I don't think borders should be completely open. Um, and it, it may be legitimate to, to have restrictions on, on immigration. 
but uh, that is very important, sort of what values we use when trying to uh, impose restrictions. Um, so, so it's important what kinds of restrictions we have. Um, and uh, you know, obviously we can't have highly discriminative immigration policies. Um, uh, and uh, and so, so, but, but also that we should endorse more cosmopolitan ideals when devising immigration policies than, than we presently are, where today, it's, it's, uh, to a large extent, it's, just, it's really just a question of uh, you know, what immigrants do we think will be beneficial to our countries. To find out about the conference and the work of Nils Holtuk and Patti Tamara Lennart, please visit our website talkingmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.